come and pray and ask God uh, to speak uh, his word to us, uh, to be with me as I speak and to be with us as we listen. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we do thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've given us this time and this place to hear it. We thank you that as we hear it, uh, we see your great love poured out for us. We thank you especially for your son, Jesus, uh, who did not consider equality with you something to grasp onto or to exploit for his own benefit, but who humbled himself and used his power to serve us. And so we pray that you'll help us to fix our eyes on him tonight, that you will increase our confidence in him, and that as we see your grace poured out on us in him, that you will give us hope. Amen. Uh, I don't know how your week has been, uh, but sometimes we look around uh, at the world and what we see grieves us, uh, it shakes us up. Uh, I don't know what you were doing on Friday, but when I checked the newspaper on Friday, I just had that, that awful feeling seeing the news coming out of Christchurch uh, in New Zealand. Uh, it was kind of a, a familiar sense uh, in some, it sort of took me back to September 2001, that, that, that sense of kind of uh, deep sadness mingled with disbelief at the state of humanity. Uh, and of course, it's only just sort of a week or two since George Pell uh, was, his conviction rocked the world. We, we look around at the world and, and sometimes you know, we, we, we get this sense that there is sin lodged deep. You know, sometimes we just think, what has come over us? Uh, maybe you can relate to that. It, it might be these kinds of events that you look at and see that kind of shake you up, these, these big events on the world stage. It, it might be a bit closer to home as you look at the dysfunction that we see in modern politics or it, it might for you just be the kind of day-by-day argy-bargy you know it's the kind of the selfish drivers on the road or the argy-bargy in the schoolyard that makes you wonder you know aren't we supposed to be better than this you know is, is humanity just a lost cause I think there are times like this when more than ever, you know, we need hope for we we can't afford to let our sadness slide into despair. And the Apostle Paul agrees. Uh, As he surveyed the world he lived in 2,000 years ago, he had just as many reasons to want to give up on humanity. As, As he looked around his world, he certainly saw sin lodged deep and yet he also saw something that was deeper and truer and stronger that gave him a reason to hope and that's his focus here in this section of Romans tonight we are continuing our series in Romans looking at this letter that Paul wrote to those first Christians in the city of Rome and through this chapter that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks Romans chapter 5 we've seen that Paul has been writing all about hope and so far, he's taken a very personal approach. He's, he's talked about the hope that we have because God has poured out his love into our hearts. 
But now, here at the end of chapter 5, he kind of steps back and he wants to survey the, wi- the wider scene. Now he wants to focus not just on our hope for our own salvation, but actually he wants to talk to us about his hope for the world. You know, this is, this is all about where do we find hope when humanity seems like a lost cause? That's the question he's answering here at the end of chapter 5. And so what he's doing here is, is painting hope on a bigger canvas, a hope that's not just for our hearts, but which is stretched across the world. Uh, and as he does that all the way through this passage, you might have noticed as it was read, it's a pretty dense passage, actually, a little hard to penetrate. You, it kind of sounds a little bit like a riddle at points. One commentator said that it feels a little bit like Paul is just kind of writing too fast. He's, it, it's kind of like he, he j- he's just using one word where actually it would have been helpful if he'd used four or five. You might have found that. But one thing you might have noticed as we read through that passage is that he sets up these contrasts all the way through between sin and grace, between despair and hope, between one man, Adam, and another man, Jesus. And so tonight as we head into this passage to kind of reflect that kind of contrast between one thing and the other, uh, we're going to just have two points. Oh. Instead of the normal three, if you're visiting tonight, don't worry, it's just like, this is just a shock for everyone. Okay, so this is what we're going to think about. We're going to think firstly about the despair of humanity. Uh, That's how Paul begins. And then we're going to think about the triumph of grace. Uh, If you have a Bible there, anywhere in sight, and there's a few floating around loose here. There's two on the floor under the pew, there's two on the front pew. Uh, It'd be helpful to have one to follow along with because this really is a dense passage and it might um, be quite helpful for you to see where I'm getting things from. So I encourage you to to follow along. Let's dive in in verse 12, Romans 5. Paul begins like this by pointing out the scope of our problem. He writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, And so death spread to all because all have sinned. Uh, It's important here for us to just understand uh, what he means when he talks about sin. Uh, We sometimes think that sin has to do with, well, it's all about how we behave, as if sin is basically the wrong things we do, doing bad things. That, That might be how we define it to a little kid. But you get the sense here from Paul that sin is actually much more serious than that. The way he writes, it's almost as if sin is an invader. That sin has broken into God's good creation and corrupted it. That that sin is distorting God's good design and disordering God's good relationships that he's established. And then it spreads. You know, it starts with one man, but spreads to humanity almost like a virus. This is the, the picture of sin that he gives. One commentator, Beverly Gaventer, uh, she just kind of picks up on this and she, she explains it like this. So quote's up on the screen. She says, in Romans, sin is sin, not a lowercase transgression, not even a human dispositional law in nature, but an uppercase power that enslaves humankind and stands over against God. Uh, another writer puts it like this. He says, sin is portrayed as the villain, death his weapon, and people his victims. 
See, what Paul describes here is kind of like an enemy takeover. Sin's not just sort of something we occasionally do. You know how we sometimes say, um, oh, I don't know what came over me then. You know, I, I, did, I did the wrong thing. I don't know what came over me. Well, for Paul, sin's not just something that occasionally comes over us. You know, when we say something cruel or, or, or we kind of tell a lie or something like that. No, for Paul, sin is something that's taken a hold of us. It's not something that comes over us so much as something that comes out of us. And so now we start to get a sense of the scope of the problem. So that's sort of how big it is. Where does it come from? What's its source? We can see that Paul says that sin came into the world. How? Through one man. And that kind of language might make you think of something else. He's taking us back to the beginning, isn't he? Back to Genesis, to the story of Adam, the first human and the first sin. And you know how I said before that that sometimes we look around the world and we get that sense that, that we should be better than this. Well, there's a reason for that. When we turn to Genesis, we find out what it is. We see that God has created us to be better than this, that he's created humans to rule his creation on his behalf. That's what we see in the creation story in Genesis. God calls us to this glorious task. He says to the first humans, he says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The writer of Psalms picks up on this too. Uh, he He asks this question, what are human beings that you care for them? You know, what, what is man that, that you would look out for him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him rule over the works of your hands and put everything under his feet. A- and then in Genesis 2, we kind of step in even closer and we see God with Adam in the garden. He puts him in the garden and he gives him this commission to help it flourish. In Genesis 2.15, we read this. We read, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to keep it. The sense we get again is that humanity is made to rule God's creation on God's behalf there in the garden even to bring order out of chaos and to take the basic building blocks that God has put into his creation and to to use them and move them and build on them to bring out their full potential. And there God gave abundantly he, he gave to Adam every tree to eat from except for one tree. Adam was to rule this garden on God's behalf. But as we keep turning through the story, we know what happens. Adam chose to rule creation on his own terms. This is the source of the problem. Adam chose to rule instead of God, instead of ruling for God. Instead of ruling under God, he chose to rule without God. And just as a side note, notice um, Eve, Eve often cops an unfair amount of the blame for this, I think. You know, the focus is often on the way that Eve was the one who kind of first ate the fruit and then led poor Adam astray, but that's not how Paul puts it. And actually, it's not really the focus of Genesis 3. You know, because it was Adam who was made first. And he was the one who God commanded not to eat the fruit of that tree. And yet Adam was the one who stood silently by while Eve was deceived. He was there. 
but he said nothing. And so Paul wants us to know it is through Adam's sin that sin comes into the world. Adam invited it in. That's sort of the source of it. Then he wants us to see the consequence of it. He goes, there's so much interest in this first verse, isn't there? How long is it going to take us to know? Uh, What he he brings out next is then the consequence of this sin. He he wants us to see that death came through sin. And and when you think about it, it makes sense. Because if sin's not just about our behavior, but about our relationship to the life-giving God, then when we turn away from that God, when we try to rule instead of that God, when we put ourselves at at odds with the life-giving God, then we are cut off from the life that he gives. And so Paul says, death came through sin. Now notice something strange here. I don't know what you think about this. Paul is saying that in a very significant way, humanity, the whole of humanity, everything we see as we survey our world has been shaped by one man's choice. We often assume that sin is something we choose or hopefully don't choose and yet according to adam there's this sense in which sin chose us and we might find that hard to accept it really might not seem fair actually but paul's not talking about that he's just saying that's how it is this is what happens and actually when we think about it Other people's choices shape our lives all the time. Uh, Yesterday I was speaking to my Uncle Phil. He is my mother's brother, and so he's not a Steele, he's a Johnson. And he told me something that I never knew. My forebears were wealthy. Loaded. Can you believe it? Uh, Back in the 1800s in Birmingham, the Johnsons ran a very successful silver plating business called Johnson & Co. And if you Google Johnson & Co., you can still find their beautiful silver items on eBay. And this was apparently, he sent me this photo, was, was one of the rooms in the house where they lived. Now, then things, you know, uh, took a twist. My great-great-grandfather, Arthur Oswald Johnson, stuffed up. Uh, He caused so many problems for his family that they kind of packed him off and sent him down under. They they were kind about it. They kind of gave him plenty of money so he could set himself up, but they sent him to the other side of the world. And and actually, he, he settled in Manly, and he got married young, and he had a whole bunch of daughters, And then he had a son, and he did quite well for himself. But then history seemed to repeat. We don't know exactly what went wrong, but we do know that Arthur disinherited his son, my great-grandfather. See, I could have been English, but I'm Australian. More concerning, I could have been rich but I'm relatively compared to that poor Wayman Arthur Oswald's choices have shaped my life 
and the lives of generations of Australian Johnsons who are still relatively poor. Paul is trying to say something similar about us and Adam. He's saying that Adam has passed on his inheritance to us. But more than that, he's passed on some of his family traits. There's a, there's a, there's a likeness, a resemblance that we see in every human being that deep down we too resist God's rule. Yeah? It's a family thing. Like Adam, we want to rule instead of God. Instead of ruling for God. And so this sin comes out of us. This is why, actually, we can't complain about Adam's choices. Because our choices resemble his. And Paul puts it like this. He says, and so death spread to all because all have sinned. He's saying we're our own worst enemy. And yet one of the dangers we face when we despair at the state of the world is to start pointing fingers at someone else, to pass the buck, to lay the blame. As if the problem is only out there with them and not also in here with us. Do you see? We're actually a lot more like Adam and Eve than we realize. What did Adam say to God when God confronted him and asked, have you eaten the fruit that I told you not to eat? She made me do it. Exactly. Sam knows. This woman you put here with me. And what did Eve say when God confronted her? It was the serpent. But Paul wants us to see the true reality. He says death spread to all because all have sinned. You know, this is a really sad indictment on all humanity. He's saying we all follow in the footsteps of our ancestor we all follow in the footsteps of adam we all reject god's rule and so are ruled by sin now just contrast that for a moment with the myth we often hear the myth of human progress which says do you know what it is the myth of human progress you know that we're all moving forward the whole world is moving forward on this evolutionary trajectory towards greater and greater heights of human knowledge and moral behavior uh, there's an atheist philosopher who says this myth is a delusion uh, his name is john nicholas gray and he's written a book called the silence of animals on progress and other modern myths he is no fan of christianity but at this point he finds himself agreeing with paul he writes this he says history may be a succession of absurdities tragedies and crimes but everyone exists uh, insists the future can be still be better than anything in the past to give up this hope would induce a state of despair and again, he's got a really punchy way with words, like cheap music, the myth of progress lifts the spirits as it numbs the brain. And then finally, actually taking us back to Genesis and picking up on this Genesis myth that he doesn't believe in, he says, in comparison with the Genesis myth, the modern myth in which humanity is marching to a better future is mere superstition. As the Genesis story teaches, knowledge cannot save us from ourselves. If we know more than before, it means only that we have greater scope to enact our madness. 
the message of Genesis is that in the most vital areas of human life, there can be no progress, only an unending struggle with our nature. It is a dire indictment, isn't it? And he's certainly not saying that there's no progress at all. We have improvements in technology and uh, our knowledge certainly does increase. But his main point is clear. The myth of human progress cannot meet our despair. See, humans need more than progress. We need saving. Which brings us to our second point. If verses 12 to 14 are all about the rule of sin and death over humanity, in verse 15, Paul's language suddenly shifts. See that? You got it there in front of you? What's that first word, verse 15? But, yeah, it's one of the best words in the Bible. It always means there's a change coming. But the free gift is not like the trespass. See, this is a change. This is a reversal that screams possibilities of hope. Whereas in verses 12 to 14, sin entered the world and brought death. Now, God enters the world with grace. And so Paul keeps using this language. Do you see how his language shifts in verses 15 to 17? These words like free gift and grace, he repeats them over and over and he kind of contrasts them. He plays them off against sin and death. So what I want you to do is have a look at a Bible there somewhere around you or near you or pretend to if you don't actually have one in front of you just so I can't tell. And see if you can count how many times in verses 15 to 17 does Paul use the words free gift. Maybe a Mars bar except for people who are here this morning. Free gift. Emily's been disqualified because her dad whispered the answer and he was five. Ben Tillman's Mars bar for you. I don't actually have one. Okay, well, let's call it quits. Um, free gift, five times, and then have another look. What about the word grace? Katie, did you get help here? <laughs> Man, oh well, I don't need to give anyone my advice. Five times free gift, three times grace, eight times in total, and every time he uses them, do you see what he's doing? He's contrasting them with sin and death. And so what you have is this constant sense of sin being reversed by grace. See that as we read, read through? Paul seems to say that say the same thing over and over in just slightly different ways. And it's easy to get lost in the detail, but there's this pattern here of these contrasts and reversals. So you see it there in these if-then statements. See that? He keeps on saying things like, if this bad thing is true, then much more surely this good thing is true. So you see that in verse 15. For if the many died through one man's trespass, then much more surely has God's grace abounded. Uh, verse 17 does the same thing. If, because of the one man's trespass, death ruled, 
then much more surely will those who receive God's grace rule on God's behalf. I'm kind of trying to summarize those verses a bit there, but Paul's key point is this. He's saying time and time again, God's grace is our hope because it has the power to break the link between sin and death. Sin deserves death, but God gives life for free. That's the point Paul's making. Sin deserves condemnation, but grace gives forgiveness. Sin leads to death. Grace offers life. And so this is this picture of restoration. You can see it there in verse 17. In fact, it's more than reversal, actually. It's not just taking us back to the start. It's not just fixing the problem, it's actually recreating humanity to be more than we ever were. So verse 17, we find this humanity which tried to rule instead of God, now restored to rule on God's behalf. Instead of being ruled by death, Paul says, now they rule in life. And he wants us to see this is what human life is about. You weren't made to be ruled by sin. You weren't made to be ruled by death. You weren't made to to be ruled by condemnation or to look around and survey the world and be, you know, dragged down into despair. In fact, I I think what Paul wants us to see, our problem, I think, sometimes is, is not just that we think too highly of ourselves. Our problem is often that we set our hopes too low. Paul's saying, no, you were made with glory to rule on God's behalf. And this is the hope that Jesus brings. This is why we can look around at the world and not despair. Paul says, where once sin came into the world through a man, now God has come into the world a man and the grace of that second man overcomes the sin of the first jesus is like you know the new adam only he's infinitely better he's like adam 2.0 you know he's the adam who takes the bugs out of the system he's the man who rules on god's behalf and that's what we see wherever he goes as we read through the story of jesus life as we open up the gospels You know, we see Jesus ruling on God's behalf. We see him always giving glory to his Father. We see him always listening to his Father. We see him always trusting in his Father. We see him always praying to his Father. He keeps on saying things like this. He keeps on saying, I have come to do my Father's will time and time again. And because his Father is the God who gives life, well, people are restored wherever Jesus goes. You know, as he teaches the crowds of lost people, as he rebukes the religious hypocrites, as he heals the sick, and as he forgives sins, it's it's almost as if he's restoring the Garden of Eden wherever he goes. Everywhere he goes, we see his obedience is more powerful than our disobedience. And so this is the point. Paul is making as he comes towards the end of this passage and he he starts to wrap things up. You can see it there in verse 19. 
He says, for just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. He's saying, this is what it boils down to. On one hand, we have Adam who disobeyed his heavenly father. And if we follow in his footsteps, that makes us sinners. Not just people who occasionally sin, you know, when something comes over us, but sinners. It's not just about our behavior, but our relationship with God. On the other hand, we have Jesus who obeyed his heavenly father and so who came into the world for us and was born as one of us the son of God who became a son of Adam. And so he was born into this world of Adam's sin. He was tempted to sin like we are, but never sinned. Instead, he gave his life for sinners to bring us back to God. And so that's what Paul is saying there when he says the many will be made righteous. Again, he's not just talking about behavior. He's talking about our relationship with God. Do you see here there's this contrast? It's as if Paul is laying out these two competing visions for humanity and he's asking, which inheritance do you want? The one earned for humanity by Adam's choices or the one that Jesus earned? It's no contest. You know, when we look at Christ's church, or when we look at the sin in our own lives, when, when we wonder if humanity is a lost cause, on one hand, we can turn to Adam, whose choices lead us into sin and death as we follow in his footsteps, ruling instead of God. On the other hand, we can turn to Jesus, who walked into sin and death, so that we could have life. See, this is why we can have certain hope when the world seems lost. It's because God never thought we were a lost cause. God didn't write us off. In fact, he gave his greatest treasure, his only son. His son, Jesus, came into the world and died so that we could be restored. Paul finishes off this passage by saying to us, and he can do it. You know, that's how he finishes there in verse 20. He says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He, he's so excited by this, he just makes up a new word. I don't know if you ever do that. You, you don't, can't quite find the word that, that you want. That, but the word that's translated into English as abounded all the more there is actually a word that Paul is only Paul uses and it's it's actually a combination of these two Greek words I don't really know how to say Greek but anyway it's something like this hupa perisuo no one else it, Paul's just inventing this right hupa super didn't know that was going to rhyme perisuo abundant and so what he's saying is this he's saying that when you know this is super abundant grace when sin increases grace overflows He's saying humanity is ruled by sin and death in Adam, but in Christ, grace will win. Because no matter how big or how bad or how fast or how strong sin is, 
grace has this ability to turn sin's power back on itself. I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this, but Jesus' death on the cross is a little bit like a cosmic judo throw. You know how, I've never done martial arts, so I'm just pretending here. But you know how it works, right? A judo throw takes the momentum of an attacker's force and turns it against themselves. This is judo stuff. Taekwondo, same sort of thing, do some stuff like that. No, I should have set you up beforehand. <laughs> Let's, could you just go along with it for a second? <laughs> so here's what I mean. Jesus takes, Jesus takes sin's great strength, its power, its greatest weapon, which is death, and he uses its power to do his good work. That's what you see on the cross. At the cross on Calvary, you see sin at its worst. It, you see this scene where it looks like sin and death have won, and yet as Jesus takes our sin on himself, he's bringing humanity back to God. And this is why we don't despair. Because no matter how low sin sinks or how destructive it is, no matter how strong a hold it has on the world, no matter how much it increases, grace increases all the more. Grace outlasts, grace outplays, grace outsmarts, grace outloves sin. When we follow in Adam's footsteps, sin multiplies. When we trust in Jesus' grace, we see that grace superabounds. No matter how bad things get, grace will win. And so Paul's actually in his letter in chapter 8 going to go on in much more detail to explore what this looks like when a world that's groaning under sin is redeemed and God's people are glorified. In, in chapter 8, we're actually not going to get to that in this sermon series. You're going to have to come back next year um, for that bit, or you could just go home tonight and read it. He explores it in much greater detail then, but just for now, he finishes off by reminding us just of the promise. See that? He writes, sin exercised, death in uh, sorry, sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification leading to eternal life. Death through Adam, but life through Christ. And so this is kind of the, the two visions that, that Paul presents to us. Death through Adam, life through Christ. So when we feel our sadness slide into despair, which man will we follow? have an opportunity now to express our answer to that question. We have an opportunity to dedicate our lives to the one whose grace brings hope. So let's stand and sing together.